Welcome to the Pony Club Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're at the 2022 USPC convention, and we are sitting down with Carol Kozlowski. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I am Carol Kozlowski. I am from the Genesee Valley. I am a graduate A Pony Clubber from the Genesee Valley Hunt Pony Club back in its day. I am here this weekend at um, our uh, Pony Club convention as uh, an inductee into the Academy of Achievement. It's a huge, huge, huge honor. And um, and I had the great uh, honor of working with the, um, the National Youth Congress and working with these very, very talented and, and um, bright young adults uh, in their two days of their of their Congress, and um, it was just such a pleasure. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. That's yeah. awesome, yeah, it's such a great group of kids. It is, They're I was great. so, so impressed. And my fellow inductee, Sally Ike, uh, we just kept looking at each other saying, holy cow, these kids are sharp. They're just, you know, they they really, it, they're such a good snapshot of the Pony Club uh, organization as uh, it's really a leadership um, skills building organization that just these kids happen to ride. They happen to be on horseback. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started riding and describe your experience in Pony Club and everything? Sure. I actually am a a bit of an anomaly. And my mother says that I'm a throwback to both of my grandfathers because I am one of six children and I'm the only uh, kid in my family that was horse crazy. And so and I tell people growing up, it was the best possible um, stressor. I'm going to put it that way, because if I wanted to pursue um, any interest, I was horse crazy. If I want to pursue that, I had to make it happen myself. So I'm the second youngest. And um, I and my neighbors, we live in in the country in western New York. And uh, my neighbor, uh, fellow uh, teenagers, uh, many of them rode and they were involved in Pony Club. And I thought that was very cool. Uh, so I joined Pony Club actually as a 13-year-old before I even had a horse. I And, and so of note, this is kind of interesting, I never owned my own horse while I was in Pony Club. I didn't buy my first horse. It was a $500 horse off the, the track. We're very near Finger Lakes Racetrack. But I was the beneficiary really of the, the generosity of other people with horses. And they could tell that I was kind of... Um, dedicated and 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 determined and I was just very lucky but I so I got my little job at a at a restaurant when I was 14 years old and bought my own saddle and paid the expenses and uh really was probably the person that pony club was tailor made for because I just just was um, such the ideal fit for that program. You know, the nurturing, the educating, but also the independence and the self-reliance and the responsibility. It was um, it was such a wonderful way to grow up. So I actually went all the way through um, my A testing on horses I did not own. That's amazing. Yeah. That is really cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It speaks to the Pony Club community too. It really does. Um, and, you know, so ironically, this is kind of funny. The the family, the mom that, that lent me 
Um, and this is a bit of a side note, the, the woman that lent me the pony that I started out on, she had bred that pony to a Connemara stallion uh, named Turin Laddie that was in Genes- that was in Geneseo the, the, at Hideaway Farm. And, and so I was, I rode her offspring, uh, um, a half-bred Connemara named Valley Maiden. I rode her through my bee testing, never dreaming in a million years that 20 some years down the road, I would ride Touring Laddie's grandson, Aaron Gobra. See, it's wow. talk about small world. Yeah. But at any rate, the, the funny thing is mom, her two daughters were very good athletes in school. So they started out in Pony Club, but they discovered boys and they discovered sports and they discovered, you know, they were cheerleaders. And I was just rubbing my hands together because as they kind of made their way out of the barn, I made my way into the barn and rode all the horses. So it was, it was a perfect fit for me, but yeah, I was super, super lucky. That's awesome. Yeah. That is so cool. Um, and then speaking of, do you want to tell us about Aaron Gobra and your experience? Yeah, I um, so there's a very, very long version that I shared with uh, the uh, participants in the in the national, you know, the NYC. But the short version is I um, was lucky enough to have a horse before him that I did ride through the advanced level and was long listed for the Olympics and did the training sessions with. And when he was unsound, well, he wasn't unsound. He started popping splits. We determined that jumping around, you know, the, the courses at Rolex and all that was probably a little more than he should do. So we, we, we sold him and subsequently bought a very nice horse in Ireland. And then things went Absolutely. The, the, you know, the train went off the tracks. I had a falling out with the, the, the co-owner of the, of the horse and I, where I was working. And so I, and I was in college at the time. So all of a sudden um, I was left without a horse and, and that's probably a really good place to be. You got to hit rock bottom at, at some point. And so that was probably my rock bottom. So I rented my own barn and I'm still in college full time and I'm teaching lessons and I'm breaking horses for the racetrack. And one day, um, Jacqueline Harris, who is the owner of Hideaway Farm, walks in the door and says, um, a friend of mine, Marion, who I went to, through Pony Club with, she had been riding Gobra and Marion was pregnant with her first child. And she said, would you would you ride Gobra? Um, you know, Marion is, is no longer available. And I said, yeah, sure. I guess, because I, I had seen him at local competitions and, you know, he was, he was okay. I mean, he was a bit rough around the edges and he, and he looked like a, a, a Connemara pony. He had the feathers and, you know, was a little rough around the edges, but you know, sure. He, and I fit him, you know, he's only 15 hands, a 15 one on a good day. So, I, and he was currently driving at the time. They were also doing um, pleasure driving, combined driving with him. And um, so I started riding him. And, you know, I, I rode him, I think, for 15 years. And it was really, we really were made for each other. I, I, the first thing I did was shave his feathers off and bang his tail and pull his tail and pull his mane. And I made him look like a little sport horse because he looked too much like a Connemara pony straight out of a field. And then, you know, we did the dressage and I rode him at training level and then we moved him up to prelim. And then two years later, he went intermediate. And then two years later, he went advanced and then he went around some long formats. I mean, nobody had these kind of expectations for him. And and he blew me away as much as he blew everyone else away. But he was just so adorable. I mean, he was such a handsome wonderful, generous fellow. 
you know, he, you would not have known he was a stallion. He, he actually, there was a Briar model made of him. Oh gosh. Well, let me, let me back up in my GoBra story. So right around the time he was doing the intermediate advanced, uh, Jacqueline's son, Sterling Harris came back from California. He was a, a filmmaker and he moved back to Geneseo and, and ironically, Sterling Harris was in the first class ever inducted into the Academy Achievement. Yeah, he so he was a graduate, a pony clubber. So he goes way back to the early pony club roots. But at any rate, Sterling came back and um, and he saw what I was doing with what we called him Gobra. So he saw what, what what I was doing with him. He said, "I want to make a a children's film about this." And I I was a little skeptical because I had very strong feelings about about our reputation and how I wanted to see our relationship portrayed. And, you know, I was, I was a little, as I said, a little skeptical. Well, Sterling uh, scripted the entire movie and it's called the little horse that could, and actually it's still available um, on DVD. I finally had to throw away my VHS tape, but at any rate, <laughs> it is on DVD on Amazon, but he, so Gobra tells his story of, um, you know, what his life is like and, and, you know, and is competing and this and that. And, and I was telling the, the kids at the NYC, it was a bit disconcerting to have a film crew following me around at these competitions because he was competing for real. And, you know, a lot of the footage is true competition footage. Um, and some of it obviously was scripted and, you know, and set, set up and stuff. But, um, yeah, Gobra tells his story and, um, and the little horse that could became kind of a sort of an iconic children's video in its time. Um, but at any rate, he, uh, and I'm going to kind of relate my two experiences here that that probably were impactful in my induction into the Academy Achievement. Um, you know, the early roots of eventing were in the military. And so when eventing became uh, an Olympic sport, an FEI sport, um, there was a, a, a standardized rule that for cross country, the riders had to carry 165 pounds cross country. Because that's what the average cavalry rider carried. You know, he weighed around 150 pounds because he was dead fit. And then, he, you know, he had his saddle and his girth and all that. Well, when they finally let women event, because we were deemed not too fragile <laughs> by, by the 1960s, um, we, the, the weight rule stayed in place. And so across the board, it didn't matter how tall or wide or short or what you were riding, you had to weigh out is what we called it. Like they do at the racetrack, we had to weigh out at 165. So I'm not a big person. And I also don't, I wasn't riding big horses and, um, and I was in pretty good company. There are a lot of sort of petite women doing the sport at the same time back in what we called the long format, which was uh, roads and tracks, steeplechase, roads and tracks, a 10-minute bet box hold, and then um, and then your championship level cross-country, which was big. So here I am, um, and it's funny, Sally Ike, my co-recipient, she's about the same size I am, and she tells stories, too, of carrying 40 pounds of, of dead weight. And so I, I would get nervous before these big competitions and basically stop eating, you know, just because I was so nervous. So I'd start downing the chocolate shakes, the milkshakes to try to keep my weight up. But at the end of the day, I carried anywhere from, or I should say my horse carried anywhere from 45 to 50 pounds of lead. So if you want to know how much that is, go pick up a feed bag. 
And that's what I was strapping to my horse. And we tried to do it thoughtfully. We tried to be smart about it, you know, like they do at the racetrack and put, you know, most of it over their shoulders and a little bit behind the saddle. And some people did crazy things and put, you know, lead in their their riding boots or in their pockets. And I didn't, I never did anything that crazy, but at any rate, it was a big deal. And when, um, when I finally one day said it, 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 well, let me describe the feeling. It was horrible. And, and the horses, you know, so there was go bra, but before that, the horse that I rode advanced before him was 15, three and I'm riding him around Rolex, you know, with 165 pounds on him. And, it was quite um, stressful emotionally to know that I was doing that to my horse, but that was just what you did if you were going to compete at the highest level of the sport. So I started questioning this. I, 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 I couldn't tell you when, you know, kind of the, the thought bubble <laughs> became a reality, but I thought, why are we doing this to our horses? And so Gobra did finally have a tendon injury at Radnor one year carrying his lead and so I, I really kind of became determined to at least get further involved in this. So the next year I went to Radnor and um, surveyed the riders and asked them how big they were, you know, what, how, how much they weighed and how big their horses were. Because the thought was that women riders had an advantage unless they carried weight because they were riding these big horses. Then I'm like, no, we're not. So sure enough, we did a survey and we were able to show in a graph that, that no, um, women tend to, tended with the exception of riders like Karen Stives, you know, or, you know, the, the, there are a few petite women riding big horses, but mostly the, the smaller horses were easier for us. So, and I, and I also took a petition asking people to sign this petition, um, uh, formally requesting what was then the HSA is now the USEF, um, to, um, asked the FBI, it was an international rule, to abolish the weight requirement for cross-country. And so I went off to this meeting, and it was a hostile reception, let me tell you, because, and, and the only thing I can say is I honestly think, in fact, a few very well-regarded riders did accuse me of trying to impact the sport in a way that would um, benefit my, me, you know, that, that I was looking for an advantage, that, you know, that basically I was trying to make it easier for women than men uh, in eventing. And, and that was really insulting, but at any rate, it was, it was not a hostile, it was a hostile reception. Um, and they said that we had no data and, and other than anecdotal. And I will tell you anecdotally, it was a pretty awful thing to feel putting that much lead and then riding your horse, knowing that his shoulders are loaded. Okay. So they said, you have no data. And so that was the end of that at that meeting. So um, later the following spring, I'm going to say this is around 94. Um, I ran into Roger Heller at, uh, at a competition. And I have to say, if that hadn't happened, this whole thing would have come to a grinding halt. But Roger said to me, I know how passionately you feel about this. You need to talk to Dr. Hillary Clayton, who is a, an internationally renowned kinematic, equine kinematic expert. And, uh, and so I did, um, a, a good friend of mine, a vet that I work for, we reached out to her and she said, yes, I will design you a study because she was an inventor and she knew exactly what we were, where we were going with this. And so she designed the study and gave us a budget that we could not meet. I, I fundraised, we fundraised, we did not meet her budget and she did it anyway. 
So she conducted uh, an official study of how dead weight impacts smaller horses, you know, in their jumping form, in their bascule over fences. And she came to Geneseo to Hideaway Farm and we had six horses up to up to 16 hands. And um, and we did a mock because because fatigue is part of that factor. You know, the horse is tired and then you're asking them to, to jump around. So we did a mock long format to get the distance. And then she randomly assigned the 40 pounds of dead weight. We, we jumped this prelim table over and over and over like 10 times. Each horse jumped it and they were randomly assigned the 40 pounds, you know, first five times, last five times, because she was trying to, you know, keep it as random as possible. And she, um, it was very crude um, you know, in these days, we have all our digital, you, you know, um, analysis. So back in the day, in the 90s, she had retroreflective markers that she she pasted or glued to the horse's poles, to their knee, to their shoulder, all the points of articulation over a jump that a video camera could track. OK, and then she took everything she was, I believe, at the University of Michigan at the time. She took everything back to, you know, her her lab her office and reduced it all to stick figures. And sure enough, she was able to show that the bascule is, is severely impacted that when horses carry that much dead weight, they cut down. So in other words, they're likely to land much more steeply, especially after a spread jump, like a table with tremendous impact on their front limbs. I mean, you can only imagine. So, um, so off I went the following year back to the meeting with my research and it was a totally different reception. I mean, you got your data. well, we, we had the data exactly. And, um, it was really interesting because the people that were really kind of rude and, and, and frankly discouraging the first time around were all over it. They're like, Oh, you know, I, I like I was a hero. So this data, interestingly enough, did not go straight from the USCF. Um, a good friend, of the vet that I work for, uh, a vet named Denny Frappier, who was Canadian, he ended up taking the data to the FEI, to their General Assembly, that April. Our, our meeting was in, I think, December or January. So that April, he went off to Switzerland. And this was, I think, 1996, five or six. Um, and I got a phone call, you know, in the middle of the night, because we had landlines back then. And... Um, from Switzerland saying that they had, they had reduced the weight. This was the year of the Atlanta Olympics. So they had reduced the weight from 165 to 154 by one stone. So I guess a stone is 11 pounds. So by one stone for the Olympics, but to be abolished at the end of the year. And so poof, it's gone. And, um, and so then the following year, I was named the Chronicle Horseman of the Year, a co-recipient with the vet, Dr. Joseph O'Day, who um, was both my employer um, and, and my kind of my, my co-worker on this. And so it's really funny when I was at the NYC this week earlier, you know, I asked the, the group how many of them knew about the, the, the 165 pound weight rule and they all just kind of gave me a blank look. And so we and so Sally and I had to explain that it's ancient history now. Uh, but anyway, getting back to Gobra, I never put the I never put the weight pad on him again. Um, and I was accused by a very, very well-known horseman that I will not name of trying to change the sport for one horse. And, and again, I was kind of insulted because I said, this change will not come in time for this horse. I don't know if it's going to happen now. I don't know if it's going to be five or 10 years from now, but this horse will not benefit from this. And he didn't. 
but um, he did recover from his tendon injury and um, did go on. I competed him through intermediate again, but he was 15, 16 years old and frankly had some back issues. And so I said to his owners, we need to stop because I never, ever want to see this horse embarrassed. He, he, I mean, he had a fan club, <laughs> you know, his movie was out there and every time he was in public, you know, it was sort of a big deal for both of us. Um, you know, like I said, he was a Briar model. He went to Equine Affair. He went to Equitana. I mean, he was quite an ambassador, both for eventing um, and, and in his time um, was the, the highest. We call him the winningest, which isn't a word, but the most successful stallion in um, in what was then the USCTA eventing history. Yeah. And so who would have thought you know, back in my early days when, when Jacqueline Harris walked in my barn, that that's where we were going. You know, I said to the kids, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but I said to the kids in the, um, in the NYC, I said, you know what? I know you guys think where you're going and the road is not going to go where you think it's going to go and you embrace it. And when you get to the fork in the road, you take it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I thought I was going to be a big time team rider. I thought I was going to the Olympics, you know, and there's a reason it didn't happen. And I'm grateful. I'm you sort changed, of grateful for all that. Changed the sport. Well, but I certainly wasn't going there when I was busy training for yeah. my, you know, training yeah. back when I was a kid. So yeah. In, for it's, the it is interest. ironic. Yeah. Yeah. For the best interest of the horse, too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I still have my lead pad. I don't know what to do with it. I can't throw it away. It's like this relic oh in the corner yeah. of my, in the corner of my tack room. I'm like, eh. Well, it's kind of like, this is what, you know, it's like an example. It's not, out, it's not out on display. It's under a bunch of saddles. But every time I go to clean out my tack room, I go, eh, I'm not ready to throw it away. I'm it's something like you overcame, too. Yeah. Like you helped. I can't even describe I used to have to get permission. Um, the little guys, it wasn't quite so bad, but I did ride a couple, you know, 16, 16, one horses that I literally could not get high enough because they had a spine. And it's like, it's like anything that spine had to align with a horse's mm -hmm. spine, because if you got it an inch or two off to one side, that's 25 pounds yeah. that's off to one side. So I used to have to get permission. They would send a steward with me. I'd go and I'd, way out with all my tack, you know, 165. And then we would go back to my stall and I'd get my step ladder out and I would just kind of like do that, you know, to make sure it was on. So not off to one side. And I came in once because just like pony club, you, you had to ask permission to dismount because apparently you could do something nefarious between the time you got off and got on the scales to weigh back in. So I had permission to dismount and I hopped off and I'm, and I'm struggling because, you know, I've got the overgirth and I've got this 50 pounds of lead and saddle. And the guy goes, here, let me help you. And I went, wait, because I knew, <laughs> I knew what was up there and he didn't. And he dropped it. He just like went and it just oh went. Poof. And I went, oh, you know, I'm oh thinking you gosh. just broke the tree in my saddle, you know, oh and so I'm like, I told you to wait. So, and, and granted, there were maybe at, at any given long format, there were maybe 10 of us that were carrying substantial amounts. But getting back to the breakdowns or the falls, our horses couldn't recover. So they had to be extraordinary. They were doing 10% more than all the other horses to overcome the handicap. When that rule was changed, was there those horses that were carrying that? Did you see like a 
big difference? You know, that's really, so the short answer is no, and it may have only been psychological, but the riders were like over the moon. You know, the riders that had to carry the lead, it just, it was a welfare issue. And, you know, we love our horses, we love our partners, and we're here in a competitive situation. Eh, you know, yeah, eh. yeah, yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, I mean, not the same, but kind of that idea where you're saying, oh, yeah, like if it's off to the side and it's all on one I side. saw somebody's lead pad come out once and, and yeah, cross country. I saw their lead pad come out from under oh, the saddle gosh. and I thought, well, they're not, they're done. So can you tell us about your current involvement in the equine industry, both as a trainer and then also like through your affiliation with all the different organizations? Yeah, lots of affiliation. <laughs> so, so ironically, this is actually funny, but it's not. So off I go to these meetings armed with my petitions and my research and my data. And in the, in the spare time of, of not, um, you know, stirring the pot with the, the, with the weight issues, I went to presentations and I went to committee meetings and I listened in and I'm not a governance kind of person, but I became interested in sort of the inner workings, you know, what goes on in our national organization, you know, eventing in particular USCTA and then USDA really kind of interested me because I'm of the opinion, if you're not part of the solution, then you're probably part of the problem. So I thought, well, I owe it, you know, to, to kind of be part of the solution. So, um, you, you know, attended the meetings and apparently became a familiar face because sure enough, about six or eight years after that, I was tapped, um, probably longer than that, but anyway, I was tapped to go on to the USCA Board of Governors. And um, I was on the USCA Board of Governors for a total, I think, of 12 years. I mean, sort of rotating on and off. Um, and was uh, apparently talent spotted. And, and, and the reason I say that with a smile, um, I was asked to come on as president. And, and, and to quote the, the nominating committee when they approached me about it, they said, we need a woman who can handle the pressure. And I thought, wow, apparently that seems to be my, <laughs> my, my lot in life now is to kind of jump in the, jump in the, the crucible or whatever. So I, um, I followed up um, some very, very capable presidents. I mean, it was, it's, it's a daunting thing to put yourself in that position. But the good news is I had been in governance long enough that I kind of knew what the job entailed. So I was president of the USCA from uh, 2016 to 2019 and um, was able to help our, our current president kind of come into the job 2020. And I apologize to her profusely. Her name is Max Corcoran because she came in as president and then COVID hit. I mean, I, I just I just kind of was sighing relief <laughs> that, you know, because that was that was tough. Yeah, yeah, that was really tough. But at any rate, um, I did get booted. Um, and I and I am uh, just finished my term as president in Western New York. We have a group called the Genesee Valley Riding and Driving Club. And I was an early president and then off during my you know big involvement with the USCA. And they I went back for a couple of years and now I'm off again. So I, I can't seem to dodge that. Um, <laughs> but I'm now on the board of directors for the USCF as an eventing representative but um like i said i'm here this weekend uh, um and honored to be here as, a, as an induct, in an inductee 
Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to have you involved in this all too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's awesome. it's um yeah. It's and been very you, rewarding. Do you run your own training bar? I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I um once I became obvious that I was not Olympic caliber, which is sort of a tough nut to swallow, and then you embrace it because frankly, then the pressure's off a little bit. I um I don't have the personality to be uh, to have the drive to find the horses, to find the owners, to find the sponsors. That is a twenty four hour, seven day a week job, and and I I I don't have quite that drive. And it's also, I mean, when you look at these guys, they get injured very often. And um, so at any rate, it seems that my, my, a better fit for me was the training and the teaching. Um, and I, uh, yeah, so I have a, a training barn in Genesee, it's actually in Avon, New York, which is in the Genesee Valley. But um, I've had several horses go to the advanced level um, since Gobra. Um, and and had enough of a of a profile that I was asked to coach the um, area two young rider team in 20, 2003 through to 2005, and that was really a wonderful experience. Yeah, and so I really enjoy hungry kids. I love passionate kids, and this this weekend was just a reminder of how much I enjoy it. But yeah, I do a fair amount of teaching and training, and actually have just branched out into FEI dressage because one of my uh, older event horses uh, has some physical infirmities. He can't, he can't jump very well. He has kissing spine, but he's very good on the flat. And so I just got my silver medal on him. Yeah. He it's, that is just, it is, it's such a cool sort of side road. I, I'm not ready to be done jumping. I'm actually leasing a, um, an intermediate horse from a friend of mine for this season, but, um, yeah, That's yeah. Cool. I do like, stay busy. Yeah. yeah, looking at what you have and then taking it where it can go. Like if it's not, you said the fork in the road. You took yeah. another path. And yeah, you got yourself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I. It's funny. Um, the only horse I had to jump last year because I, I have had a string of bad luck. I've had two lovely, lovely young horses that both um, have had physical issues. You know that were stellar athletes, and they just never got where they were meant to go. Um, so in the meantime, I have a neighbor that has, uh, we think he's Connemara Morgan, but I think he's something at this adorable little 15 hand guy that, um, that I invented beginner novice last year, just so I could keep jumping because if you don't keep jumping, you forget how to do it. Um, so I was thrilled to have this, this horse available to, to lease this year. Awesome. Yeah. And then do you judge too? I do. I um so it was funny years ago I was getting a little bit of pressure from the USEA. They have what they call the instructor certification program. And um and what was getting some pressure to be involved in that, to be certified as an instructor, but you know, having my own full-time business, you you have X amount of spare time, especially weekends. So I said, Well, here's your choice. I can either go through and be licensed as a judge if you need judges, or I can become ICP certified. You know, what do you want here, folks? And they and the consensus was, yes, we we need more judges. So I did go through and get my um, my small R judges license. And I'm in the midst now of upgrading, of, of testing up to be a large R. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the judging is so helpful to my teaching and, and writing. Oh, yeah. 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 
Yeah. Well, just your eye of, of what the perception is, you know, you think you're riding great and then somebody puts eyes on you or you look, you go in front of a mirror and you go, well, I need to, I need to do a few fixes here. So, yeah. Even just like video, videotaping a lesson or something you see and you're like, I don't feel the, the yes. Yeah. It is a bit humbling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The United States Pony Club wants to thank our official sponsors. Our official corporate sponsors include Shapley's, the official grooming product sponsor, Triple Crown, the official feed sponsor, Wintech, the official saddle sponsor, Carrots, the official apparel sponsor, The Horse, and Shop Pony Club. Don't forget to stop by shopponyclub.org for all your Pony Club needs. We have everything from gifts to Pony Club logo apparel, manuals, and study guides. Shopponyclub.org is the one-stop Pony Club shop. I guess looking forward, if you're looking at the industry as a whole, are there any you know, you've improved an area that mm-hmm. you saw an, an issue with. Is there an area you'd like to improve that you see needs improving in the equine You know, industry? obviously my background um, and area of expertise is in eventing. And, um, you know, where our, our culture seems to be headed, it was, we are losing land. I mean, it's, it's not, it, it, it's a pretty basic fact. And, um, we have in the past, most of our competitions were held on private property. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's interesting when we have an event, um, you know, fold, close its doors, you know, for whatever reason, stop running. Everybody assumes it's because of the restrictions put in place and it's so costly and this and that. When, when in reality, um, I believe it is generational. You know, that one generation had a passion for running that competition and then the 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 sons and daughters might not share that passion or the farm co- comes on the market for sale. You know, land is so valuable now. So we we do lose competitions. And so we have to be very supportive and 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 play nicely when, you know, at the competitions we do have. Um, it is. It, it, it is worrisome to me that, um, you know, Pony Club is so wonderfully structured around responsibility and, and conscious, conscious um, care of the horse and, and, you know, hands on. And as our um, culture changes, not many people keep their horses at home anymore. And a lot of people board and a lot of people who teach, um, uh, you know, whether you're a pony clubber, actually, I shouldn't say that because pony club is really good about teaching their kids hands-on, but a lot of clients, a lot of students are not hands-on and, um, they don't understand the horsemanship and they don't understand the responsibility. And so, uh, I know our current president, Max Corcoran, I mean, she's a professional groom and she has really tried to get it out there about event riders in particular, but also, you know, you have these programs in the hunter jumper world, you're just trying to make these riders aware of every facet of care of their horse. It, you know, the, what you do in the saddle is, is fractional to the actual teamwork involved and, you know, getting them learning how to be hands-on and learning how 
to be proactive in their horse's care and not just wait for the groom. Um, yeah. yeah. And so to me, that that is a bit of a worry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will I will close with something rather controversial. You know, we we are in a, um, a a phase now, a stage or whatever of awareness of inequality, you know, diversity, equity. And, and so I like to feel that I do not carry prejudices. But what we do riding the sport of riding in and of itself is expensive. OK, I don't know if there's any way we can change that so much as we can change how accessible we make it to to underprivileged people. And so I think it is our responsibility to do as much as we can to make what we know to be an incredible experience, um, you know, interacting with, with an equine, make it available to people who might not normally have that experience and could be life changing for them. In my opinion, the best thing we can do to improve relations, you know, to improve the the availability of what we do is not to change names, yeah. is not to change the name of the events. It's to get get in there and and um, support these organizations that make what we do available mm-hmm. to underprivileged or people that, you know, give that give that kid who, who might not be able to afford to ride with you, put them to work. You know, if they want to ride, put them to work, you know, give them the lessons, just sort of think outside of the box. What would you tell someone that wants to make a difference in the, in the industry? Like, what would you, what kind of advice if someone sees something that, you know, how you saw you know that's a tough question because you hear you hear a lot from young people I want to make a difference and um I feel like I made a difference and I did not intend to I I did not get into the horse business say I'm going to make a difference I got into the horse business saying I'm going to be ethical I'm going to be fair to my horses I'm going to be fair to my my students and my clients I'm going to do the best that I can I'm going to you know, welfare, um, you know, certainly they didn't live in the lap of luxury, but, you know, again, going back to the pony club, doing the best that I can. And you will at some point run into a situation where you're going to have to make a tough choice. Like I've lost clients. I've lost clients over saying your kid's not ready to do that. And, and so I think you make a difference in the sport by being, this is going to sound really cheesy, by being a good citizen, by being um, honest. And sometimes honesty is really, really hard. People don't want to hear it. Um, But by being honest, by being fair, empathy is a really good trait. And that probably makes me a bigger sucker than I, I should be. But, you know, making a difference in the sport um, you don't want to make a bad difference. <laughs> you, you know, you, you don't want to be the, the person that, um, that people point to and say, whatever you do, don't do that. So I am certainly not a follower. Um, but I do feel like I weigh all of the, um, all of the, 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 you know, the situation, I, I kind of look at it as a whole and try to make the best decisions that are the best result for everybody. And that's probably because I'm not cutthroat. It's probably why I wasn't an Olympic rider. It's probably- diplomatic. 
Like most of the time, <laughs> yeah. Most of the time, I try to be diplomatic. Every now and then, if if you really get me going, then I'm not so diplomatic. But <laughs> but um, yeah, most of the time, I try to I try to listen to what people say, and that was sort of another big thing of the presidency of the USDA. You listen to what people say, and you might be thinking to yourself, "That is total nonsense." You know, that's like your little thought in the back of your mind. You're listening to somebody going, "Are you kidding me?" But you hear them out. And you say, how interesting. And then they have had, they've had their voice and they have spoken their opinion. What you do with it from there on, that's sort of your choice. But you don't, you don't not listen to people. And, and every now and then someone will say something to you and, and you, it, you'll be gobsmacked. I mean, just kind of, whoa, that is, I had no idea. You know, I, I'm so glad you told me such and such or you shared that with me. So, um, yeah, it's, it's so getting back to your original question, making a difference. Um, there are a lot of people here at this convention that are making a difference in not just the future of Pony Club, but in producing really fine human beings. I mean, the, the kids that are lucky to come up through this, um, spending that spending the time with those with the NYC group. I, I, and, and somebody told me that it was Rob Burke, um, cause he is a former inductee as well. And he said, wait, do you, you do the, the, um, spend the two days with them. And he was right. Yeah. That's yeah. That's and so I see these parents here with their kids. I'm going, Oh, you lucky child. Oh my word. Yeah. 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 The future of you got it. Not even, even if they don't end up in the equine industry, which they career. won't. So 98% of these kids are not going to be horsemen. They're not going to be end up in the horse industry. And that was something we talked a lot about in the NYC was, you know, these kids are already off doing other things. And a couple of them are, you know, doing horses and they're doing horses while they're in college. Um, what they have learned going through this, those are life skills. Yeah, the horses are auxiliary to that. The horses is basically another, you know, any care for any other um, pet, you know, you, you learn responsibility. And so the horses are an important part of that. And empathy, too. You got it. Yep. How does what I do impact that dog, that cat, that person, that horse? Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, So do you have any overall general advice for anyone listening or anything else you want to say to our listeners? You know, it was funny. I I said to... um, Again, the kids in the NYC, and I and I share this with my students as well because I certainly have had as many failures as I've had successes, and and failure in competition, you know, failure in objectives or you know business, whatever. I mean, reduced to tears, just just desolate, and things work out. You know, I'm old enough now to be able to say that, 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 that I don't care whether you're in the horse business, in any business, here you are fresh out of college, you get your first job and then, you know, bad things happen. Life, horses, especially, it's a series of peaks and valleys. And, and so when it's going really well, that's why we have a big party. When we have a really good competition, man, you celebrate because there's a kick in the butt waiting right around the corner. And so, yeah, you you accept that that and, and certainly COVID taught us that, that we all really um, suffered in some way. But ironically, those of us with horses got to spend more time with our horses. So 
usually, and I, and I told the kids this, especially in competition, when bad things happen, the, the um, opportunity for self-reflection, you know, for correction, for improvement, yeah, you, you've got to be really good at making lemonades out of lemon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or frustrating situations, like to come overcome that. It is. Yeah. And I've, I've been there. I have been like totally beaten up and, and sort of pulled myself together and said, well, how am I going to, how am I going to, where am I going from here? It makes you stronger. It does. It, yeah, it really does. It's true. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, you're very welcome, really, ladies. That was fun. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to tune in for our next episode and be sure to follow us on Instagram at United States Pony Clubs. And we're also on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And you can find our website at ponyclub.org. And all of our podcasts are available on the different platforms where you find podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye.